Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. On October 31st, 1517, a Roman Catholic monk nailed 95 theses or doctrinal ideas to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. At the time, it was no momentous occasion. These things were, these doctrinal statements of sorts or theses for debate were were nailed to the church door often like a bulletin board. The theses themselves that Martin Luther penned weren't nearly as radical as the beliefs he would come to believe in a few short years. But looking back in history's rearview mirror, uh, it's clear that October 31st, 1517 was the beginning of something. What Luther protested most in these 95 theses was the abuse of the sale of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Indulgences started in the medieval period, and really they were sold to the penitent sinner who wanted to remove years off their time in purgatory. It was something like a a proof that you were genuinely sorrowful. It was a kind of payment to show he really meant it. But then enter a new need for funding the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And enter a guy named John Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, who was a slick salesman and priest. And, And these indulgences took on a new significance in Luther's day. Tetzel's new and improved indulgences could care less about penitence. They didn't get years off of purgatory, but offered freedom from purgatory to those who bought them. They weren't just for you, but they were also for your deceased loved ones. You could get them out of purgatory any time. And they could also help with your future sins. So one man bought an indulgence for the sin of stealing the money box for selling indulgences. What a deal. Forgiveness and you get your money back. In 1517, Luther still believed in the use of indulgences. Of course, he wouldn't in a couple of years. But he still believed in the use of indulgences, but not not the abuse of indulgences that was going on in this new way. But behind this whole question of indulgences and the abuse of indulgences and what's so often mentioned in these 95 theses is the nature of true repentance. That was Luther's concern behind the concern of this abuse of indulgences. He hasn't yet, in his trek, come to believe in faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That'll come. But he did at this point understand that true repentance is not something external, not something that's earned or deserved, let alone bought. And behind his concern about the nature of true repentance was his own personal wrestling with the tension between his own sin and God's majestic holiness. So even years before 1517, we see this when he tells us of his first time to do the Mass as a Roman Catholic priest. He was utterly overwhelmed with the weight of that task. 
He came to these words in the Mass. We offer to thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And he froze. He couldn't say another word. He later wrote, At these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble even in the presence of an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. What is sin? Who is God and what is he like? What's the problem and and how big is it? How can God love us? How can God be good to us? How can God forgive? What do we do with our sin? Well, these are the kinds of questions that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. Early on, Luther saw the problem before he saw the answer, the solution. As Protestants, we look back and we see the hand of God bringing reformation and revival to Christ's church, not just at the Reformation, but other times as well. Acts 2 is certainly one of those. Each season of reformation and revival is a different story, different figures, different circumstances, different theological issues coming and going, at least to the periphery or front and center. But they always begin with a new or a renewed awareness of who God is and who we are. That he is lofty and holy and we are not. In other words, they always begin with repentance. 1 Samuel 7 is a chapter in Israel's history that we could call Reformation and Revival. It's one that begins with repentance. It's one of the bright spots, one of the real high points of the Old Testament, you could say. Like other seasons of Reformation and Revival in church history since, it begins with this renewed awareness of sin, of need. A story of repentance and grace leading to humble restoration and blessing. It's a story that shows us how to respond to our sin, how to respond to God's holiness, how to think about God's forgiveness and favor, how to respond to his discipline. So let's read it together. 17 verses in 1 Samuel 7. Let's read them all at once. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Well, I see six different movements in this chapter that deserve our attention this morning. The first is this, sin leads to sorrow. In the first couple of verses, we see sin leading to sorrow. The the sorrow part is explicit in verse 2. It says, Israel lamented after the Lord. Lamented. But the sin part of the equation behind the sorrow, it's just assumed here in these first two verses. There's a story that came before it, and and that's that's where the sin is, you could say, that leads to their sorrow. Really, it started way before even 1 Samuel began. You'll remember how Judges ended. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and there's a a barren woman who's, yes, literally barren, physically barren. She's a real woman. She really prays, and the Lord really answers her. But she's representative of the whole condition of the nation at the time. Israel is spiritually barren, dried up on the inside, dead from the inside, unable to do anything, helpless and hopeless. And the Lord gives a son to Hannah and begins to do something it looks like. But as soon as... 
soon as Hannah's done praying in 1 Samuel 2, we're introduced to the spiritual leadership of the nation, and we're told that Eli, the high priest, had sons who were also priests, and they were worthless. They didn't even know the Lord, and they slept with ladies at the front of the tabernacle and stole the food from the people, messed with God's sacrifices. In chapter 3, we get this sad summary that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. God wasn't speaking. Not through Eli, certainly not through his sons. In 1 Samuel 4, we get introduced to a battle with the Philistines. And here, Israel lost 4,000 men. But they get the idea to get the ark of the Lord, that gold box of glory, and to bring it into battle with them. Surely it'll garner victory. But instead, 30,000 men were routed by the Philistines. The priests are dead by the end of 1 Samuel 4. And the ark is taken captive by the Philistines. Brought to their land. Brought among their captured idols. But as we saw, 1 Samuel 5, God doesn't need his people for military victory. His glory is there in Philistine land, and in his glory he routs them. He runs through the land as they move this gold box of glory from one place to another. Their tumors appear, and rats appear, and the people die because of God's judgment. The Philistines passed the ark around until they said, send it back. Just get that thing out of here. And Israel rejoices in this. In chapter 6, Israel rejoices. The ark has returned. You can hardly get that sentence out before some guys go looking in the ark like they're not supposed to do and God kills them. And so chapter 6 ended like this. Them asking the rhetorical question, verse 20, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And then another question, which isn't rhetorical. To whom shall he go up away from us? They've learned from the Philistines what to do. Get this thing out of here. Get God out of here. And so they send it up the road, another city, basically park it in some guy's barn and have his son keep an eye on it so they can forget about it. That's where chapter 7 picks up. That sin leads to them lamenting. The ark has been parked there for 20 years. It's been out of sight, out of mind for 20 years. In verse 2 of chapter 7, when it says, 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented, it doesn't mean they lamented for 20 years. It means after 20 years, they lamented. They remembered their sorrow. Sin leads to God's judgment. Sin and judgment will always lead to sorrow. Eventually, you can for a time pretend like he's not here. He doesn't see. He he doesn't exist. 
But God won't let that happen forever, will he? I think you know that deep down, even if you say otherwise to people or tell us what you believe about God, whether he exists or not. You see, hopefully sooner rather than later, sin leads to sorrow. It's a good thing for sin to be painful. It's a good thing to lament because of the absence of God. This is a dark and heavy book, isn't it? First Samuel. The only bright spot has been Hannah at the beginning of chapter 1 and then her miracle son Samuel who looks hopeful but he hasn't really done much of anything except in chapter 3 he begins to hear from the Lord. He's called of the Lord. He's going to be a prophet. And his first assignment as a boy prophet is simply to to relay judgment to the priest. His stepfather who's taking care of him, his stepbrothers, you could say, in a sense, adopted family. He, he has to give judgment about God's coming destruction of that line. And where has he been since? Samuel, where have you been? God called you in chapter 3. Now this whole thing with the Philistines and the ark and the ark coming and going and going again. Where's Samuel? Twenty years it was in Kiriath Jerim, and the ark collected dust. Where, where's Samuel during all this? We don't know. We're not told. A chapter breaks, and you pick up twenty years later. No doubt Samuel was being Samuel. No doubt he was proclaiming the Lord's ways and warning of judgment. But apparently no one was listening. Apparently no one lamented. Apparently no one cared. But... Things are changing. Until now, we haven't seen much of Samuel. Now in chapter 7, we do. So secondly, we see repentance leads to fruit. Sin leads to sorrow, and repentance leads to fruit. It wasn't clear in verse 2 what kind of lamenting was taking place in Israel. There is a kind of sorrow for sin that isn't repentance. Regret. And sorrow and sadness or even tears may look like repentance and not be. We're told by Paul in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 7, that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Both grief, but one is salvation and one is eternal death. So what is it then to repent? What is godly grief then? Well, it's beginning to see sin, not just as my problem or as possible judgment, but beginning to see sin as God sees sin. To see it from his eyes, to know it's against him. We've besmirched his name. We've put his glory in the mud. We've exalted self. It's high treason against the king. It's beginning to feel a humble, sorrowful need. Repentance is giving up on self or giving up on self-salvation, you could say. Giving up on our ways and turning to the Lord. In the gospel, repentance is one half of the coin. Repentance is... 
this thing of how we view sin. The other side of the coin is faith. That's how we view Christ. One side is a response to the problem. One side is a response to the solution. Really, we don't need to go further than verse 3 to see what true repentance is. Samuel tells us. So in verse 3, he says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If you are returning to the Lord, then that lamenting is a godly lamenting. Are you? Are you returning to the Lord? You know, if you're not a Christian, you've never returned to the Lord, but you have gone astray. We all have. Since Adam and Eve, each one of us has been born into this world going astray, going away from God, going against God. In some ways, repentance is simply a turning to Him. It's a returning to Him. And as Christians, we return to the Lord often, don't we? Martin Luther put as his very first theses of the 95... That repentance is to be the habit of life. It's to be all of life. In some ways, repentance is the the heartbeat of the Christian. Repentance is simply acknowledging our ongoing need for a Savior by noting again that we've sinned and that without grace we're doomed. If you are returning to the Lord... And with all your heart, Samuel adds, if you're returning to, all, to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods in the Ashtaroth. Idolatry has crept into God's people. They've adopted the gods around them. In Ashtaroth, that's plural, Ashtoreth, singular, was a Canaanite god, an idol. It was the god of storms and fertility. I'm not sure why you'd put those two together into one God, but hey, when you're making up religion, you can do whatever you want. So it's a singular God, but here it's plural because they must have had statues around their home. Plural. Put away those idols. Burn them. Break them. You're done with them. Put them aside and serve me only. Serve him only. That's one of the first of the Ten Commandments. Not one of the first, it is the first. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods besides me. It doesn't get more basic than that. I don't know if you have anything, any phrase in Scripture that's more like a chorus than the Lord saying, there's none besides me. I am the Lord. I am one. I'm the only one. There's none besides me. There is no other. There is no God and Savior like me. So part of repentance is putting aside false gods and turning to the true and living God and worshiping him only. Or another way of putting it is that you direct your heart to the Lord. Isn't that a great saying? Direct your heart to the Lord, Samuel says in verse 3. And really that's applicable whether it's a season of sin that needs repentance or not. We could say of every morning to self Self-direct your heart to the Lord today. That's your mission. Whatever else will come up, direct your heart to the Lord. 
Very similar to how Moses prayed in Psalm 90. Oh Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. Direct your heart to the Lord. This is what John the Baptist preached when he said, bear fruit that's keeping with repentance. That means bear the fruit of repentance. Repentance has a, a fruit to it. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a prayer. It has, it has implications and it gets fleshed out, however imperfectly, in desires, in actions, in, in stopping sin. And that's exactly what Israel did in 1 Samuel 7. We find out in verse 4, they do, they do exactly what Samuel says. In verse 5, Samuel gathers them at Mitzpah and he prays for them. In verse 6, they pour water on the ground. No one really knows why they did that, but probably some sort of symbol of cleansing or some sort of sacrifice. They fasted, we know what that means. And they freely confessed their sin again to Samuel and no doubt to each other. They own it. Repentance leads to fruit. Maybe you'd say, uh, repentance? Who needs it? I don't need to feel bad about my sin. Okay. Remember, sin leads to sorrow. One day there'll be an accounting. Repentance is painful, but it leads to life. And it leads to fruit and change. And Christian, this is what we do. We, we just keep repenting. We, yes, we try not to sin, but when we do, we keep repenting. We keep having sorrow for sin. We keep calling on him for his mercy, and the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Repentance leads to fruit. Thirdly, we see in 1 Samuel 7 that helplessness leads to prayer. Helplessness leads to prayer in verse 7 and 8. Here's what happens. The Philistines hear or see Israel gathering at Mitzpah. That's a massive gathering, no doubt. And the Philistines assume they're rallying the troops. They're getting ready for a battle over there. And so the Philistines say, rather than play defense, let's go play offense. You see, verse 7, When the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel in battle. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Afraid. They shouldn't be. Do you remember chapter 5 and chapter 6? That God in his glory box marched through the land. He had them carry him as he went and doled out judgment and destruction upon them. He routed them all by himself. He didn't need Israel's swords, knives, spears, whatever. He didn't need their rocks, their stones. They shouldn't be afraid. They should know better. But they could have responded worse. They plead with Samuel to plead with the Lord on their behalf in verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Again, this could be better. Why don't they pray? Why isn't their instinct to just drop to your knees and pray for help? We don't know. It could be better here, but it also could be much worse. 
You see on the bright side, they're looking to Samuel for leadership. They're seeing him as God's man at God's time, doing God's thing for them. Asking Samuel to help them is no doubt a sign of humility. Calling out on God through Samuel, yes, is a a sign of their their helplessness and their God-dependence. They weren't just afraid. That's the point. They were afraid. So they asked Samuel to pray. Helplessness should lead to prayer. This has enormous practical implications for us as Christians today. This isn't just about Israel and in battle in 1 Samuel 7. This is Paul in Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in everything, pray. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses knowledge, it'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're not supposed to worry or be afraid We're to pray. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's good for us to feel our helplessness. To to first know our helplessness spiritually. That's where it all starts, right? We need to feel and know our helplessness spiritually. That if God doesn't have mercy, we're doomed. But as Christians, we're to keep feeling our helplessness Not just spiritually, but in every way, about everything. You know, there's a sense in which we don't worry enough. Things are crazy out there. I mean, what if we played this game? Who can think of the weirdest scenario of something bad happening right now? And we just brainstormed, right? So someone goes, well, the ceiling could just fall down on us and we'd all be dead. That wall could just crumble down These lights could blow up. I could fall through the ground right now. A lion could run through here and eat us. I mean, we could get really weird about what could happen. And we don't like to think about those things. People who think like that are, uh, they're not right emotionally, we say. But it could happen. Crazy things can happen in this world. And we don't like to think about them because, well, because let's hope not. Let's hope they don't. We're that helpless. We're helpless in every way. We're helpless about everything. We can do nothing. Nothing. You can't make your heart beat the next minute. It's good when God kicks out the props that are underneath us, the the crutches from underneath us, so that we might more clearly depend upon him. It's good when we pray more because we feel like we have to. We feel like this isn't something I should do. I can't help it. And we say to Samuel, a pastor, a friend, pray for me, intercede for me, don't stop praying for me. It's good when we're there. Oh, I know it's hard when we're there, but it's good when we're there because we're much closer to truth and reality than all the other seasons where we're deceiving ourselves into thinking we don't need God. We can do it on our own. 
We as a church need to feel and know our helplessness in what we're trying to do. The Lord calls us to do things we can't do. And so we pray. Fourthly, we see in 1 Samuel 7 that intercession leads to blessing. Intercession leads to blessing in verses 9 through 11. Samuel intercedes for them not only with prayer, as they asked, but also with sacrifice. In verse 9 it says, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and he cried out to the Lord. What happened? They answered him. The Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. And, and then verse 10, as he was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines now draw near in battle to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. The Lord thundered. This is what Hannah sang about. This is what she sang about in chapter 2. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Here we now see, 1 Samuel 7, what's he doing? God is a thundering. And we're not told how. Clearly it's miraculous. Somehow, it says in verse 10, he threw them into confusion. I would love to see what this looks like. I mean, does it mean they, they turned into like grade school boys and pushed each other into the bushes and tickle-fighted and, what are we doing here? I don't know. And threw them into confusion. I mean, how, how weird was that? I don't know. But however the Lord did it, he threw them into confusion, unseen, and yet... He thundered. Behind the scenes, God was thundering. And Israel was victorious. Well, no, really, it was God who was victorious. He was the difference. Israel did very little. This battle scene is like an inverse of chapter 4. There are similarities and big differences. Both chapters are wars with the Philistines. In both chapters, they kind of seek the Lord's help for the battle. But, oh, what differences. In chapter 4, it's Israel who was struck down. But now here in chapter 7, it's the Philistines, same Hebrew word, who were struck down. In chapter 4, Israel called for the ark, that it may save us, they said, but here in chapter 7, look at verse 8. They call on the Lord our God. The first time in 1 Samuel that the people have personalized Yahweh God. The Lord our God. They call on the Lord our God that he, not it, that he may save us. In chapter 4, it ended with this name, Ichabod, glory gone, no more. In chapter 7, it ends with another name, Ebenezer. The Lord helps us. What's the difference? Well, you can't miss the fact that Samuel is making sacrifices for the people. God's blessing depends 
on blood, on payment. It depends on death. Samuel's interceding for the people all through this chapter. We need intercession. There's more to be said than that, but we we see that in 1 Samuel 7. Samuel, in his sacrifices, there's something of the difference here. We need intercession. It's what Job talked about. Job was probably the earliest book written, even before Genesis. And Job, in his wrestling with God, said, Oh, if only I could have a mediator, a go-between, someone who would put his hand down to me and raise his hand up to God. It's the age-old problem. It's what Martin Luther was feeling in that first Mass. How do you do this? How do you do this? Intercession leads to blessing. Fifth, we see remembrance leads to progress. Remembrance leads to progress. You say, progress? I don't mean progress in some kind of scientific breakthrough kind of way or becoming a better society, being socially accepting now or something like that. I mean progress in God's plan. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 7. You know how it seems like there are some chapters of the Bible where it looks like the, the promises are not getting closer but further away. It looks like sometimes you're going backwards, not forward. Well, this isn't one of those chapters. This is one where there's progress in God's promises being fulfilled. You see it so clearly in verses 13 and 14. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. All the days that Samuel was in charge of the nation, leading the nation, the Philistines weren't a problem. They become a problem again later on, even in 2 Samuel. There's still stuff with the Philistines. But, at face value, we take this. During the days of Samuel, in his leadership, the Philistine problem was no problem at all. And look at verse 14. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel, they were all restored to Israel. And that's what God promised long ago. He promised that to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. He promised to Abraham that from Abraham would be a people who would one day become a nation, who would dwell in a land, and they would be under God's rule and his blessing, and they would be a blessing ultimately to the whole world. The Philistines have been standing in the way of some of those promises for a long time in the story of the Bible. It was back in Judges. The Philistines showed up in this new land and quickly took over a lot of the cities. But no more. No more. The land is all regained. The victory is, is won. It, peace is spreading. Look at the end of verse 14. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Look up Amorites in the back of your Bible. There's an index there. Read some verses about Amorites. There have been a lot of battles with Amorites. But, but now, well, all right. You're there. I'm here. Let's be buddies. We're cool. Peace on all sides. Why? Why is it moving forward now? Well, one, God wanted it to. That's just, 
just the way God does things. God loves to juke the story, you could say. He, he likes to surprise us as we're reading the Bible. You didn't see it coming. You didn't think it'd go that way. You didn't think he could boomerang this thing. It's just all over the Bible. Why is God moving it forward now? Well, he's, he's faithful for his good pleasure. Because he said so. That's why. And Samuel's a part of the equation. These were good days, all the days of Samuel. But there's something else here. Why is there blessing? Well, because of remembrance. Notice that verse 13 begins with a so. So, that implies a connection, a a therefore, a, a consequence to what came before. And what came before is verse 12, and that's about remembrance. Verse 12 says, Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Part of the blessing flows from Samuel's leadership to lead the people in this all-important thing of remembering, not forgetting. So he sets up a stone as a memorial. Right here. This is where it happened. This is what the Lord did. Ebenezer. I know you think of Ebenezer Scrooge, but, but no, it's a, a Hebrew word, and, and it means the Lord has helped. And what Samuel has in mind, of course, is the battle that just took place, the victory over the Philistines, God's protection, God confusing the Philistines so that the victory was sure. But I think Samuel probably also has in mind all the ups and downs that have come before in 1 Samuel. He's probably not just thinking of 1 Samuel 7. He's probably looking back and seeing the Lord's help. Remembering his mom's miraculous pregnancy. Remembering his time at the temple or the tabernacle. And that he was taught the things of the Lord by Eli. Remembering God's judgments. Remembering God coming and speaking to him that, that fateful night. He no doubt remembers as well all the way back to, to Abraham. And these promises given to Abraham now being fulfilled before his very eyes among the Philistines. No doubt he has in mind God's powerful rescue of his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus. So when we get to 1 Samuel 12, we'll see Samuel's last sermon. And what does he preach on? He preaches on the Exodus story. He goes back and says, God worked wonders. God provided marvelously for you. God was patient with your forefathers. And they sinned. Don't you. Don't you. It's all about remembrance. And no doubt, this Ebenezer stone is not just about the past. It's also about the future. Till now the Lord has helped doesn't imply uncertainty about the future, but surety. You look back and you see again and again and again and again and again. That implies something about what's ahead. 
He'll do it again. He'll do it again. He'll do it again. He's faithful. This is what we sing about in that old hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. But it's actually another hymn that has that word Ebenezer in it. We don't sing this verse too often, I don't think. We're probably going to sing it more now that we've been through 1 Samuel 7, and we'll know what Ebenezer means when we sing it. And come thou fount of every blessing, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, not the old guy, not lifting him up on a chair or something. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my, my memorial. Here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. In our bedroom, we have a nice leather box that sits off to the side, and in it it has a bunch of letters. Letters that my wife and I wrote to each other before we were married, when we were dating or courting. Um, I mean real letters, like with paper and pen. We didn't have email. Occasionally we'd get on someone else's email and email, and you know, we had to play it safe, though, because we knew friends were reading this, and you know, can't be too lovey-dovey. But in these letters, a little bit different, we could really talk about our hearts and, and the Lord. And so we have this collection of letters. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I think sometimes I wrote two a day. Uh, you know, I, I haven't opened that box maybe in six, seven, eight years. I haven't read one of the letters in at least that long. But I walk by that box and I see it. And it reminds me of love and a lot of history together and my commitment to my wife and, and her commitment to me. Just seeing a box. You, you've got things like that in your life, right? In Ebenezer. In the New Covenant, the Lord has given us a kind of an Ebenezer meal. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, we call it. And it's about the past, isn't it? Jesus spilled his blood for me. We look back in the past, and that has powerful implications for the present and for the future. Israel, in 1 Samuel 7, could look back and say, Ebenezer, the Lord has helped thus far. And know what it meant for the future. How much more us? We have millennia more of God's faithfulness than they had. And we have especially the cross and the resurrection. And so we don't need to know what he'll do exactly with this thing you're going through right now. We don't know if it's going to, the test is going to come back positive or negative. We don't know if it's terminal or not. But we know he didn't spare his son. And so he'll do us good. Paul says in Romans 8, if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up to the cross for us all, how will he not also bless us with him with all things? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. What more could he give? 
remembrance is essential. Tuck this away, Christians. We move forward by looking backward. Lastly, we come to this at the end of 1 Samuel 7, that leadership leads to stability. Stability. Now, I don't mean this as some sort of like leadership guru principle. Leadership leads to stability. Therefore, we need a longer presidency or something. I don't mean that. I mean the stability that we've been seeing at the end of 1 Samuel 7 is there in part because of Samuel. And so many of God's promises are coming to fulfillment in 1 Samuel. Remember, the Lord is now thundering against his enemies like Hannah prayed. Samuel, whose name means, I have asked of the Lord is now asking the Lord, and the Lord is answering him just as he did his mother many years ago. Samuel is now the the means by which God's word is coming to God's people, as as God promised in chapter 3. The bad priests have now been wiped out and removed, and, and Samuel is leading the people back to the Lord He's judging them, we're told. Four times in this chapter, we're told that Samuel judged. And that doesn't mean like he judged. He went around and said, you're sinful. And, and you know, if, if someone said, that girl goes around town and she judges. You know what that means. That's not what Samuel's doing. Samuel is judging. Like a judge in our own day would, yes. Administering justice, yes. But more than that, he is judging By that we mean confronting sin. The things he's doing in this very chapter, preaching repentance. That's what it means for Samuel to go around and judge. Like it says, 1 Samuel 7, 14. He he went around all the cities and he judged. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He built an altar to the Lord, verse 17 tells us. You know, we can, we can think of Samuel in 1 Samuel 7 in terms of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, at least in like fashion. You see, he preached, he, he pleaded, he taught like a prophet. He interceded for the people, both with prayer and with sacrifice, like a priest does. And he ruled, he judged Israel in those days. He led them. He wasn't their first king, but he was king-like. He was prophet-like, priest-like, king-like, similar to a Moses or a Joshua before him. 1 Samuel 7, and really you could say 1 and 2 Samuel as a whole, they're about leadership. Not how to make you a better leader, or not what good leadership is or does, or something like that. No, no, no. You see, a lack of leadership was the problem at the end of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone was their own king. They did what was right in their own eyes. It's the problem that's being addressed in 1 Samuel. So Hannah prays that the Lord would bring in his anointed, the king. And here's her son, now speaking on behalf of God. The problem of Eli's Poor leadership was addressed already in chapter 5. And 
What's God doing here in 1 Samuel 7? He's bringing his man in his time to his people for his glory. A prophet, priest, king-like guy for their salvation and blessing and restoration. It's a great chapter. Will it last? Will it last? Well, let's just take a peek into chapter 8, should we? Just verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Wait a minute. Does that sound familiar? A leader with sons. Those sons were not good. They were worthless men, and they didn't know the Lord. Eli handed his sons the baton, and they dropped it big time. Samuel, you're going to do that? Is that what's going to happen? Tune in next week. We'll see. But I think you can get a pretty good guess, can't you? It's one of those ominous foreshadows that you see all through First and Second Samuel. It doesn't last, does it? Will there ever be a leader who lasts? Will the good guy ever stay? Will there ever be a prophet, priest, and king in perpetuity? Yeah, you know, you know. Jesus, the eternal and final and ultimate prophet, priest, and king, came. He preached. He sacrificed and made atonement, not with a nursing lamb, but with himself, laying his own life down in our place. And he's the righteous king who leads humbly and mercifully, yet strongly and justly. That's what we need. We need one who's perfect and one who's eternal. Jesus came to give us God's word. Jesus came to die in our place. Jesus came to intercede for us. He came to lead us into truth and righteousness. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you apply the words of verse 3 to the hearts here that need to hear this, whether they're not Christians yet and their sins are not forgiven, or they are and they've gone astray. Would you press upon their hearts to return to you with all their heart and put away the foreign gods and idols and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and help us all to know that you will deliver us not just from Philistines, you will deliver us from Satan and sin and the curse and ourselves We thank you. We thank you for your great and many blessings. Help us now to sing of Ebenezer and the fount of your blessings. Tune our hearts to sing your praises right now, Father, in response to your word, even more in response to your glorious gospel in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.